This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Thank you so much for being here with me this evening. We are heading into the second hour of the Sunday Night Health Show, and we're talking about how men are to behave in a professional way, a respectful way at work, how men are to treat women at work. So I have Carlo on the line from Coquitlam, British Columbia. Hello, Carlo. Hey, how's it going? Fine, thanks. How are you? I'm glad I was listening to your show, and I'm kind of a... I can't understand why people would not understand how to treat women in the workplace. I mean, we're not living in 1950. We're in 2018. And if people don't understand that, uh, you know, women are equals, they should be treated as equals. They do sometimes work even better than men do in the workplace. And they should be recognized for that. And for anybody to think that they can treat another human being, not even just even female, but just think of them as a human being. Exactly. Let me ask you a question, Carlo. If you witnessed this in the workplace, would you stand up and say something to the guy that was inappropriately treating uh, the woman that way? Absolutely. And I've done it before. Excellent. I really, well, that's great. And that's also what men need to start doing. Other men, instead of being bystanders, they need to be upstanders. And so I hold all men accountable, all men, because I've actually been a target of sexual harassment in the workplace, workplace bullying as well. And people stand around and they do nothing. And, you know, yeah, it's, it doesn't even even matter whether you're, you're, you know, I mean, that happens to, to all, all, all types. You're absolutely it right. Matter. And it doesn't and have, it happen, have to happen. It's just not men to women. Women often treat women poorly in the workplace as well. Exactly. Thank you so much, Carla, for your call. I've got Jane from Manitoba on the line. Hello, Jane. Hello. How are you? Oh, uh, I am great uh, now because I am no longer in the environment where I was being bullied. Fantastic. Uh, and it's the was- only thing you can do is leave. The environment when you're uh, being bullied. That's well, all, according I didn't to the research. Just see because I always think about the people that I'm leaving behind. And I went to the union. Uh, it was not a male. I have never been bullied uh, by a coworker male mm-hmm. or a boss male. But I was bullied by a female boss and a female coworker. Doesn't surprise uh, me. I have had a lot of experience growing up in a family of five brothers and between two brothers and had a group foster home of boys. And I raised three wonderful sons. Uh, They are wonderful to women and men. And uh, they wouldn't put up with anybody being treated cruelly. May I ask you, Jane? I raise them to be respectful. That's fantastic. May I ask you, um, because women do uh, treat women poorly. As I said, I'm jealous of the brotherhood because women are brutal. There was something even on Facebook today. It was so, they were just being so mean. It was a group message and, you know, and, and so it was just such a nasty way about it. But, and also the woman who had put the, the, the message out, well, well, it wasn't the woman who put the message out, but it was actually the, what it was about. And the, what it was about was even a woman who, you know, she's created this award that, um, you know, you know, in, you know, this award for a woman who's no longer with us. And then, and then um, everybody is supposed to nominate somebody for this award. And then she charges everybody about $200 to attend this event. It's a, it's a complete scam. And so that's why I didn't want to be a part of it. But, you know, you don't even get to say that um, on there. Everyone just gets so nasty uh, with each other. And, but, you know, you can see through people uh, sometimes. I've been bullied by a woman in the workplace as well. What happened to you when you were bullied physically or, or emotionally? I, I I had I had a secondary job and I actually had to take 
stress leaves. And what, what were the symptoms? I that... was going to work crying. Okay, you're going to work crying. Did you have any other physical symptoms? Palp- heart palpitations, hair loss, weight loss, mm, anxiety? No, no. And one thing, one thing that I, I had really that. appreciate, <laughs> I have a friend. She, we're still friends. And she went up to bat for me multiple times. Uh, nice. Uh, I Amazing. I ended up getting the union involved. Like I said, I wanted to clean up this place. Mm-hmm. Uh, the whole office was revamped. Did the union the help you? fired. Unfortunately, the co-worker is still there. Uh, now, did the, <clears throat> did the, and that's often what happens. Did the union help you? Because often they don't. Oh, oh, oh yes. Oh, that's oh, yes. good. And that's then good. I resigned. And then I quit. They threatened to fire me. Yeah. Excuse me. I'm, I'm not... I'm not functioning properly because of being under stress. And then what the boss did is put me in the same environment where the bully was. Of course, they often do that. Are you trying to kill me or something? Yes. But anyway, (laughs) uh, yeah, we've all... But you had to quit your job. I'm sorry to hear that. You had to quit your job. And And, and my poor clients, you know, they they, they really liked me. But um, anyway... um, and you, sometimes it's jealousy, a, you know, some cat fight. sometimes cat it's, fight. yeah, but sometimes people feel like the, you know, the competent people in the, in the workplace, you know, sometimes people want to take them down, right? If you're, if you do such a great job, mm-hmm. people are jealous and, and of that. Know, the, the, the cat fights, those are, those are women. women they are. have cat fights. Yeah, they do. Guys, they have their punching fights and they, they, they shake hands and they go on with life. That's women, right. And they hate them. And for ages... Maybe never will they talk to each other again. You are ex- they, exactly they, correct. They can be the most cruelest gender around. That's right. I often say that um, that we will not stop violence against women until women band together, <laughs> until women actually treat and, each other well. We have a big role in it, and, and we don't realize that. Learns, until humanity learns to get along. Look at the you women know, behind Trump. Had, exactly. We've had the men being cruel to men, women, and now the women are turning around and being mean to men. If we all just learn to be mature, well, I think women are finally standing. Children. I think women are finally standing up and and utilizing their voice. They're, I don't think that they're being mean to men. Up. I think they they're are becoming the the mean people. Okay, well, if I think we it's about time we, women women spoke up and and said this is not we, fair we, for you to treat me this way. Children, we teach our children to play nice. But they see us adults not playing nice. This is true. But sometimes being too nice can get people into trouble. I mean, this is a big, complex subject, and I really thank you so much, Jane, for your contribution. I'm glad you've left the place and you're doing better. Um, Yeah, so this is a hot topic, I tell you, uh, because it happens to so many people. In fact, when it happened to me, I thought I was the only one. Uh, But I learned rapidly that it wasn't. I wasn't the only one. And you know what? Very few people help you in these situations. I I one time had an experience where I, well, first I had a a boss who said to me, I had already booked my hotel room. We were going to New Orleans. And he said, um, there's only, he he hadn't booked his, I guess. And he said, uh, there's only one hotel room left in New Orleans. And I said, well, glad you got it because I've already got one. You know, as though, I mean, that was as though he was intimating that he and I would have to stay in the same room. Um, And then another time, and then that actually progressed to even that much worse, just a mere eight, seven or eight weeks later, where he was um, screaming at me, you know, I was cowering in the corner of an office that had a glass window and a glass door, and he was screaming at me. And needless to say, I was afraid for my life. And, um, And like, 
the company had lawyers and M, uh, lawyers who couldn't get jobs anywhere else, the loser lawyers, and MBAs who um, also they couldn't get jobs either. <laughs> that was the thing. They were all afraid of him, and so he hired these people because they were incompetent. And I knew I could get a job. I didn't need this job, and I could get a job somewhere else. And so when he's like screaming at me after this psychological abusive campaign of about six or seven weeks, about 84 incidents, um, as he was doing this to me, like screaming over me, which I should have called 911 because it's forcible confinement, but I didn't know at the time. The people were standing outside, my colleagues, my coworkers, you know, which really, if they don't stand up for you, I wouldn't give them much credence. But anyway, none of them did a thing. They were men and women in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, and nobody helped me at all whatsoever. And I ended up filing a complaint with the Human Rights Tribunal. I got a lawyer, and um, you know what? It, I have a settlement, unfortunately, and settlements silence women. But I'm not sure that those settlements still have to silence women today, and I'm giving that some thought. I think a lot of people will be surprised. Nonetheless, um, we're going to talk about, uh, you know, your personality. And this is your personality in the workplace. You've got to think about who and what you bring to the workplace. And, and you know what? Your personality, the type of personality you are, says a lot about your sex life. And there's a large body of research that suggests our sex lives are partially shaped by the five basic dimensions of personality commonly known as the Big Five. So I'm going to talk about that a little bit later on in the program. But uh, right after this, we're going to talk uh, uh, with Nancy of Empty Cradle. I am Maureen McGrath, and you're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. I have worked in the area of labor and delivery and postpartum. It can be the most joyful time in a family's life, in a couple's life. But uh, there are times when uh, women experience pregnancy loss. Um, potential fathers uh, also uh, experiencing loss or the death of an infant can impact a couple and a family in a tremendously negative way. Empty Cradle is working to support those who have been through that. And there is a service of remembrance coming up on October 14th, 2018 at 4 p.m. in New Westminster, British Columbia. And Nancy joins me on the line. Hello, Nancy. Hi, Maureen. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, you're very welcome. Nancy, tell me what it's like for, uh, you've experienced uh, the loss, and that's why you actually started this organization, the loss of a of a baby. And, um, yeah, Peter and I, between our two daughters, who are now 30 and 22, had two miscarriages and a stillbirth. However, we didn't start Empty Cradle. Empty Cradle was started by another mom who had experienced a miscarriage and a stillbirth. Uh, by the time we found it in 1995, they were extremely wonderful to us and um, extremely healing to be part of the process. And what is it like to lose a pregnancy or a baby? What, what, are, what, 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 were your, what was your experience and your husband's experience, and, and what did some of the women tell you? Probably one of life's most devastating experiences. Not only have you lost the physical child, but also all the hopes, dreams, and plans you had already formed for that child. Um, by the time we had our stillbirth, our then six-and-a-half-year-old daughter knew she was going to have a brother or sister. So not only did we have to deal with our own grief, but we also had to um, answer all the questions that came from her. And that made it um, a really, um, really difficult experience. But because of the people in Empty Cradle, both the pa- uh, Patty Lou, the facilitator, uh, facilitator and coordinator, and the parents we met through the group, 
became friends, became partners in the healing journey. Wonderful. And did it impact your relationship with your husband? We're really fortunate. Peter and I are even closer now. He helps me with running the, the group. He helps me edit the newsletters. and But I made it very clear from the beginning, she was our daughter as well. She was your daughter as well as my daughter. And you have as much right to grieve as I do. So if you want to cry, go for it. Uh, you know, if we want to talk, let's deal with this together. And I believe it brought us closer. And, and allowing him, your husband, to express his feelings is, is such a gracious gift. So October 15th is proclaimed nationally as Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Day. And tell me about the event you're having. Well, the event we're having is going to actually be held on the 14th, just because the 15th is a Monday this year. And I wanted to make it possible for as many people to attend as possible. So we're going to meet at 4 o'clock in the afternoon in New Westminster. British Columbia. Yeah. And it is a non-denominational, child-friendly service, which incorporates music, candles, uh, children's story time, and a message of inspiration and hope to help people heal from pregnancy loss. Now, for those of you not in BC, Mm -hmm. if you go to october15.ca, there are events listed across Canada that you might be able to participate in. Well, that's what, that was exactly what I was going to ask. Thank you so much, Nancy. I'm so sorry for your loss. I really appreciate you coming on the program and, and sharing your story and information about this. And uh, have a wonderful Do I uh, have day. time to quickly give a website? Sure. So if you would like to come or you want more information, go to www.emptycradle.bc.ca or to contact me, emptycradle at telus.net. Thank you so much, Nancy. Thanks, Maureen. Nancy of Empty Cradle. She's been a regular guest on this program. So it's, it's, a, it's a tough subject. We don't talk about pregnancy loss uh, so much. Um, but, you know, we need to talk about these things so that people can feel good and feel better in the relationships and feel better about themselves. And knowing yourself is really important in terms of your sex life. So what type of a person are you? Are you open to experience? Are you a conscientious type? Are you an extrovert? Or are you the agreeable kind of person? Or are you neurotic? You know, there's good tra- things about being neurotic, um, I think. I'm not really sure. Um, but anyway, you know, depending on what type of personality you are can actually uh, demonstrate or tell people um, what your sex life is going to be. And um, so these uh, traits and it's not really a personality, but traits of personality are related to sexual behaviors, attitude, and health. And that's based on the results of a new meta-analysis published in Psychological Bulletin that summarized decades of research in this area. So if you're the type of person who's open to experience, you're high in openness, you, you display intellectual curiosity, a willingness to try new things, guess what? Yeah, your sex life is going to be good. Uh, if you're the conscientious type, they tend to be very self-disciplined and detail-oriented. They prefer schedules and plans and all this kind of thing. And guess what? Conscientious people actually report more sexually satis- more sexual satisfaction and are less likely to develop sexual problems. Now, extroverts probably have the most fun because they're sociable and outgoing. They like to get out and interact with the world around them. Uh, they 
tend to be more sexually active. Go figure. Uh, They not only report more desire for sex and more frequent sexual fantasies, but they are doing it more often, which includes having casual sex. So extroverts are more... It doesn't mean introverts don't have sex or aren't sexually satisfied either, but extroverts just tend to have um, more sexual satisfaction and less sexual dysfunction. So dysfunction along that sexual response cycle of desire, arousal, uh, lubrication, excitement, plateau, orgasm. And agreeable people tend to have a lot of care and concern for other people. They're kind, they're considerate, and they generally want to make people happy. Hello, people pleasers out there. As you might expect, highly agreeable people are less likely to be sexually aggressive, and they're less likely to cheat. They care about other people's feelings, after all, so they're not necessarily going to cheat. They're going to think about it. They might think about it for a long time. It's not to say agreeable people won't cheat. They might. It depends on what's going on in their life. And so, you know, cheating or infidelity is uh, one of those subjects that, uh, you know, we also don't talk about that. But there is typically an issue. There's stress going on in the relationship. Um, So even agreeable people can become uh, less than agreeable. Um, they, but agreeable people are actually more sexually satisfied as well. So lastly, the neurotic individual tends to be on the emotionally unstable side. And that's tough because they don't handle stressful situations well. And even very minor annoyances can put them in a bad mood. Neurotic people, interestingly enough, report higher rates of sexually transmitted infections. Not sure why. It could be that they're more likely to get tested or they might have riskier sex. We need more research, but this is great research because it's important to understand how people are enjoying their lives, how they have sexual satisfaction or not, because um, then we can develop uh, healthcare programs for uh, people. And we don't look at specific traits in isolation. We look more at the personality. So you know what, if you're an extrovert, agreeable, open to new experiences, adding that to being happy and just, you know, being grateful, enjoying your life, that could lead to just a lot more fun in the bedroom. And what's wrong with that? I am Maureen McGrath, and you're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. I am a registered nurse and a nurse continence advisor. You may or may not know that I actually do some quality of life research out in the community for people with spinal cord injury, focusing on bladder, bowel, and sexual health. Although it may not be as well known that people suffer with Uh, bladder, bowel, and sexual health issues after a spinal cord injury, what is known is that walking is the first thing that comes to people's mind when somebody suffers a spinal cord injury. A spinal cord injury is damage to the spinal cord that causes temporary or permanent changes in its function. And symptoms may include loss of muscle function, sensation, autonomic function. So in other words, you may have issues with your blood pressure and other issues in parts of the body that are served by the spinal cord injury. You may suffer changes in strength uh, and, and sensation. And so that is why I was quite excited to learn about some research that's happening at the University of Louisville. And on the line is Dr. Anjali, who is a co-investigator on this particular research Uh, trial research study that demonstrated that paralyzed patients can walk again with help from a pain stimulator. Dr. Angeli is on the line. Dr. Angeli, thank you so much for joining me. 
Thank you for having me. So your experiments have, de- have demonstrated, they have shown that the spine can act on its own to move limbs. And, and also you have a couple of patients who were paralyzed uh, who are now walking. That is exactly right. Uh, a few years ago, we showed that individuals with a motor complete injury uh, with the aid of the epidural simulator were able to move their, their legs um, below the, the, the injury. And we've expanded that research and now we're showing that two out of four were able to regain the ability to walk with the same technology. This is amazing. And there are a number of different types of spinal cord injury. You alluded a little bit when you said a motor complete. So there are incomplete injuries. Um, there's all sorts of different levels uh, demonstrated by the Asia exam that is done. Uh, so can you tell the listeners what a motor complete injury means? So a motor complete injury is when there's no ability to move their their limbs, their legs below the level of, of injury. So there's no muscle contraction. Nothing can be detected in terms of movement below the, the level of injury. But might they have sensation? They might have sensation. So... Uh, in this trial, we actually had two individuals without sensation and two individuals with sensation. Um, and the two individuals that actually had sensation were the ones that regained the ability to walk. Very interesting. So you actually in- implant a device into the spine. How exactly did this work? Yeah, so like you mentioned before, we're using an off-the-shelf um, technology that's, that's developed for pain. And the electrode has 16 contacts, and that is implanted underneath the bone, underneath the vertebrae, on top of the, the, the dura, which is that, that uh, shielding that, that's protecting the, the actual spinal cord. And then the electrode is connected to a battery um, that's implanted in the abdomen, and that's how we control the, the stimulation. We select the electrodes, and, and we give it a certain amount of current um, so we can control what type of stimulation we're providing. Now, you've also added a very intense and specialized training program to uh, the implantation of this device. So what do the participants in the research trial uh, need to do? What does that mean, the, the specialized training program? Yes, and that is a, a critical component. It's not just the the stimulator that's allowing them to walk, but it's the, the combination of the the stimulation with the training. So the training, uh, it's locomotor training, which is established activity-based uh, type of training used in spinal cord injury. We are just adding the, the epidural stimulation to raise the excitability of the spinal cord so the spinal cord can actually integrate the signals from the environment, the signals from from the trainers, as well as the intent from the brain, and generate the specific movement. But this doesn't occur right away. It takes training and relearning the repetition of doing this every day. So the, the, the participants actually come in to the lab two times a day, one day to um, one time to stand and then um, another time to step uh, initially on the treadmill. And when we see a certain level of independence, we move them to the overground environment. And 
Uh, how long does this take? How long did it take for the two participants uh, to walk again? So it, it varies. Um, it, it, Kelly, which was the, the, the last participant we uh, implanted in the study, showed a much faster progression that, that we've seen with the other individuals. By the third session on the treadmill, she was actually able to take independent steps with the right leg, but then it took much longer to um, get the coordination of, of both legs. So it, it takes it takes a long time. It takes months to be able to to get the the correct information down to the spinal cord and and for them to figure out what it is that they need to think about and and get all this 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 different muscles to to be coordinated and and move appropriately as as they walk down. And so as a result of this study, you hypothesize, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that the spinal cord can act on its own almost completely without any signals from the brain. Is that what you're seeing in the research? Yes, yeah, so what we're saying is that there there has to be an intent command coming from from the brain, but it's just that it's just a command to to move, to walk, and then the organization of all those those signals, the sensory information, the environment, all that is taking place at the level of the spinal cord. So for what the stimulator is doing is raising that excitability of the spinal cord, so it can receive that simple command from the brain through. Um, the, the fibers that remain intact across the injury, and then the spinal cord takes over and relearns those those tasks that it knew how to do before, and it's just a matter of relearning how to integrate all the signals. It, it's very exciting research, and I congratulate you on it. I, I do uh, wonder, I'm curious, uh, how far can patients walk with this? How far have they walked so far? So they're walking up to about a quarter of a mile in, in an hour, taking a rest. So Jeff, who is one of the individuals that that is able to do this, he's a C5 motor complete injury. So his trunk um, still needs quite a bit of um, assistance for, for balance. He doesn't have the, the trunk control and the, the hand control that um, Kelly does. Um, she's a, a T1 injury. So mm -hmm. it, it, she, he needs to take more rest and, and fatigue. It's still, it's an issue. So it's something that right now uh, we think it's still trainable. Uh, but they're they're walking fairly long distances. It's not just up and down the lab. He, they're they're able to to walk for about an hour, an hour and a half before um, at a time. That, that's that's outstanding. That's excellent. But it also shows that the the C five that's a higher injury, and so as you as you mentioned, they people will have um, you know more issues with control around, especially around the chest area, um, and somebody with a lower right. injury or lower lesion um, thoracic. Um, level, which is lower, um, they may actually have, have better outcomes. So I do some work in autonomic dysreflexia, which, as you know, is a syndrome where there is a sudden onset of, a, of excessively high blood pressure, uh, more common in persons with spinal cord injuries that involve the thoracic nerves of the spine or above, so at T6 or above, uh, patients can experience a flushed feeling or a pounding headache, heavy sweating, anxiety, and it's not until you remove the 
the source that um, that is you know removing the source is often the treatment. So if it's a full bladder or a full bowel. Um, and sometimes they require medications. And, and also, so patients have difficulty at times with spinal cord injury maintaining their blood pressure. Uh, and also orthostatic hypotension, which is lower uh, blood pressure. So are you finding any blood pressure changes when these patients are actually going um, from basically a, a seated life to uh, standing and walking? Yes, absolutely, and one, that's one of the things that Jeff had a, uh, so he was hypotensive. Um, we do pre-training before the implant, so we do the, the same regimen, the locomotor training, prior to the implantation, so these individuals could serve as their own controls after we implant them. And with Jeff, uh, we had a lot of, um, complications, not complications, but we had trouble keeping him up standing. Um, he would have to sit down because his blood pressure would go too low and um, he would start getting um, too hypotensive. So it, he would have to sit down, rest, and then we would get him back up. After the implant, his, his he was able to stand an hour straight without any symptoms. So it, it is... Um, the, the epidural simulator is also working in, in that regard that it actually helps maintain the blood pressure. We have other studies. We have another cohort of individuals that were studying exactly that, um, how to regulate the blood pressure with the epidural simulator. They're not walking um, as part of the study, but we're using the stimulator to, to regulate blood pressure. Well, it's, it's amazing, and I congratulate you on your work to date, and I wish you all the best of luck in your future research endeavors, and thank you so much. Um, this is such a critical area of healthcare. Dr. Angeli of the University. You. You're very welcome, Dr. Angeli of the University of Louisville. I'm Maureen McGrath, and you're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show to the Sunday Night Health Show, Maureen McGrath, and the final stroke of the program. So if you want to call me, call me soon, 1-877-399-9898. That's 1-877-399-9898, because I'm talking about the perfect woman. What is your idea of the perfect woman? Is she submissive? Is she somebody that doesn't talk back? She's somebody that you can perform any sexual move, move on? Is she, is she somebody who will add spice to your withering relationship? Is she somebody who won't spend your money? Is she somebody that uh, you can win every single argument with? Well, if that's your idea of the perfect woman, she may be coming to Vancouver. <laughs> At the Sex Doll Brothel, I had an opportunity to speak with Linda Steele this week about uh, the Sex Doll Brothel and my feeling on the dehumanization of women. And we had a great response to that uh, from lots of callers. Uh, lots of uh, people might be trying this out. So here you go. I uh, totally plan on trying to use the service when it opens up. Um, I, I keep hearing everybody refer to it as, uh, as sex, but in my mind, it's self-pleasuring. Latex doll, aesthetically pleasing flashlight. I mean, it's, it's just a fancy flashlight. If pornography is a thing, it's aesthetically pleasing to look at. What's the difference between, you know, at home watching porn and and using a flashlight and going and trying out one of these things? Well, I'll tell you after I use it. I think that is so 
shameful and so disgusting that if I knew a man that went there or if I was going to date a guy that I even thought would think that it was okay to go and objectify a piece of plastic, I think that's disgusting. Well, I think, and I hear everybody bringing up that it's like super negative towards and for men to get out their aggression, but what about thinking about it as a tool instead of it just being directed towards men, but what about for, say, couples that are looking to expand and explore their sexual experience and taking their, their relationship to a different level? Maybe they were looking to try a threesome, but in this case, it's, you know, there's there's no feelings getting hurt, right? There's no jealousy getting involved. You, oh. You're sort of safely, you're sort of safely exploring something without really... Well, there you have it. Some opinions on the sex doll brothel that... Uh attempted uh, penetration in Toronto and uh, is now attempting that in British Columbia, in Vancouver. But uh, this is the ultimate objectification of women. This is uh, dehumanization of women. So no longer is it important uh, a woman's touch or the scent of a woman or her pheromones or her opinion or the intimacy, the connection. Many women who work in this, in who do sex work, talk about the intimacy that men come to them because they're lacking intimacy in their relationship, and they often just want to talk or lie on top of a woman, or be held by a woman, by a woman, or women. They like that, but but because touch is incredibly important um, in an intimate relationship, and that may be lacking in a relationship. And, and I have to say, I agree with the, the woman caller. If I were, if I had, were going out with somebody who had, um, been to a sex doll brothel during a dry spell, <laughs> I would think twice. <laughs> yeah. I'd have to say, really? Um, it, it, I don't know. It's just kind of, uh, and I don't think it's similar to a fleshlight or to a womanizer, for example, which is a clitoral suckling device, just the hottest sex toy out there, the best sex toy out there, uh, if you want to experience orgasm, because that is about pleasure. This is about objectification and dehumanization of women. So it's actually taking, you know, it's, it's actually, uh, there's about four, there's one in Barcelona and there's four different um, dolls there sex toys. They're not robotic, but they do have bendable arms and legs. Uh, so they have Katie, Aki, Lily, and Lisa. And, and so they have these, and so they've given them names and, um, but you know, they, they won't talk back to you. They, um, and so they, you can choose the, uh, the breast size. That would probably be one of the most important measurements here. (laughs) Um, for men and they're certainly going to be hard. (laughs) Both the breasts and the guy. Um, but anyway, that that turns you on. Well, you know, whatever floats your boat. Um, but anyway, it's, so it's, it's, it's also being marketed to uh, men to carry out violent acts on women, violent fantasies. And, and I, just, I just take issue with that. But um, there, you know, a couple of things that I think are important to understand about uh, the sex doll brothel industry. I don't think they're going to replace... Um, sex workers, quite frankly. But um, I do believe you are not covered from sexually transmitted infections. The dolls apparently, and you got to trust here, <laughs> apparently, and listen, I've seen some nurses who haven't utilized universal precautions in hospitals. So uh, I've seen nurses take IVs out without gloves on or, or you know, take blood without putting gloves on. And they're, they're putting you at risk and themselves at risk, um, not cleaning properly. I mean, I have to carry around my box of Clorox wipes. Um, but uh, they are disinfected supposedly, but 
uh, with special antibacterial soaps. Big deal. They need to be um, autoclaved um, after each service, but they strongly advise that you use condoms. So you may actually be able to uh, pick up a sexually transmitted infection here. Um, so, you know, it's it's really, um, right now it's just male sex dolls, but they're looking to have, I mean, it's just female sex dolls, but they're looking ahead to male sex dolls as well. Um, but, you know, this is uh, this is an interesting subject. It's a sad subject. It's a sad day when we're actually creating plastic humans to uh, make love to. And it's not really ma- that we're making love to them. It's just that we're creating the perfect woman, the, the woman of our dreams or uh, of, of one's dreams, the woman of your dreams with the particular color hair, color skin, particular size waist, size breasts. Um, you know, lifelike, real life, but lifeless. Uh, you know, is this a particularly lonely person that would go for this? And it may, may be. I, I also see, though, that uh, this may be used as a novelty item. And so there'll be a lot of stag parties that are being held at these um, these elusive places. They're not actually giving the addresses until you pay. And you pay by the time you spend with your plastic doll, your gigantic plastic doll. Um, yeah, so you pay by the time and they then they tell you the address and the entrance is quite different from the exit. Anyway, lots of uh, questions about that. I hope it doesn't come to Vancouver. But anyway, follow me on Twitter at back the number two, the bedroom. Andrew, thanks for a bang up job as usual. You can go to my website, backtothebedroom.ca. Remember when you stumble on this gravel road of life. Make it part of your dance. You can always email me at nursetalk at hotmail.com. You can text me even during the week, 604-449-8459. It's, uh, it's my pleasure to be here with you. Thanks for all your calls, all of your emails, which we didn't get to tonight. I'll have to get to the emails next week. And, uh, you know, so it's always my honor and my pleasure to talk to you. And if you have anything to say to me, don't hesitate to speak up, man, woman, or or they. And uh, keep the dial exactly where it is because my friend Drex is coming on next. And uh, I'm Maureen McGrath, and you've been listening to the Sunday Night Health Show on the Chorus Radio Network. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, Tune in, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.